As a warning, this episode includes descriptions of violent acts. It's important that the sacrifices by those who endured them are remembered. And I saw these him men on these horses, and they had whips just beating people, beating, beating, beating. To some degree, by 1963, Americans are used to the knowledge of, but even image of African Americans being beaten by white segregationists. And we were taught, many of us, in our Sunday school classes that we were all children of God, and therefore uh, it would seem logical that we were brothers and sisters of one another. And yet we didn't act like that in the way we lived our daily lives. This is the Alabama Civil Rights Trail podcast, a series where historians and experts help us explore some of the most significant events of the movement that happened in the state. You'll also be hearing the real stories of people who were there and who made a difference, and why what took place then is still so relevant to us today. In this episode, Marching for the Vote, we learn about the voting rights protests in 1965 in Montgomery and Selma, the violent resistance to them, and how the movement ultimately triumphed. At the turn of the 20th century, the Alabama state legislature passed a new constitution. It's still in effect today, and at more than 300,000 words, it's at least 12 times longer than the average state constitution and 44 times longer than the U.S. Constitution. In fact, it's the longest and most amended constitution operating anywhere in the world today. And tucked inside its many hundreds of amendments are laws that effectively disenfranchise most blacks and many poor whites. You had to prove you paid a poll tax before you could register to vote. There were literacy tests, which a local registrar got to assess. There was an educational requirement, a good character clause, also known as a grandfather clause. An appointment board in each county had the discretion to approve or not voters on a case-by-case basis. Sometimes they would ask voters to prove they understood the state constitution. But at more than 300,000 words, How could anyone really comprehend the Alabama Constitution? Of course, these laws didn't apply to everyone. Subjective application of the laws effectively closed mostly blacks out of politics. In 1900, Alabama's population was 45% black. Several times during the first half of the 20th century, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the discriminatory laws. But the newly formed NAACP continued to press the issue, filing briefs, lobbying Congress, holding demonstrations, often to little effect. But as acts of violence escalated in the 50s and 60s, the tide began to change. And that change was cemented between Selma and Montgomery. This church was established in 1877, and it was wealthier ones of the community, doctors, lawyers, business owners, and educators. They purchased this property. Wanda Howard Battle is the director of Dexter Avenue King Memorial Baptist Church. And here this church still stands on this corner, one block from the state capitol, almost 140 years later. 
This was Martin Luther King Jr.'s church in Montgomery. But before that, it was home to another man who laid the foundation for the civil rights movement in the city. Reverend Vernon Johns was here five years, and he was this fireball, controversial, unafraid of anybody, and would stand up <laughs> against the segregation of this city. And when he came to Dexter, Dexter was filled with all of these wealthy, we're the socially elite uh, ones of the community. And Vernon Johns arrives and he's watching all of this segregation happening in the city. And they're not necessarily rocking the segregation boat to make a, a difference. He tells them, you may be the socially elite, but you'd better care about your brothers and sisters who are down the street being beaten and jailed. On one occasion, Johns paid his fare on the bus in Montgomery and was directed to the back of the bus. He refused to sit there and demanded and got his money back. His niece, Barbara Jones, led a student strike in Prince Edwards County, Virginia, in 1951. She filed a lawsuit, and ultimately hers was one of five cases rolled into the Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka suit that reached the U.S. Supreme Court and resulted in school desegregation across the country. Barbara Jones credited her uncle with inspiring her. When Vernon Johns uh, resigned in 1952, oh, they were happy to see him go. <laughs> and they had a visiting preacher for two years. And then in 1954, here comes this little young 25-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. And boy, they are so impressed with this man who has this eloquence and this fervor and uh, he knows how to say and he presents well, which I'm going to say was essential because when Mrs. Parks was arrested and they needed a spokesperson for the bus boycott, the pastors were the ones who encouraged Dr. King to step into that role. Dr. King insisted on a nonviolent movement rooted in love. And you can imagine the people at first thought he was crazy because you're talking about take a beating, except being spat on and having dogs turned on you. What do you mean? And being beaten by the police and do nothing? People who participated in demonstrations King organized were required to take an oath that they would neither verbally nor physically fight back. After all, some of the power of the nonviolent movement lay in its ability to provoke violence, respond calmly, and look like the better person. You've no doubt seen the images of officers on horses attacking participants of the Voting Rights March across Selma's Edmund Pettus Bridge. That moment of the civil rights movement was a long time in the making. The town of Selma is the seat of Dallas County. It sits about an hour west of Montgomery in the heart of the Alabama Black Belt. It was originally called the Black Belt because of the region's rich black topsoil. But in the 19th century, it took on an additional meaning when enslaved Blacks were forced to turn out cotton from that soil. After the Civil War, many freed men and women stayed in the area as sharecroppers and tenant farmers. In 1961, Dallas County was 57% Black, but of the 15,000 Blacks old enough to vote, only 130 were registered. In the 1950s and 60s, the Boynton family, Sam, Amelia, and their son Bruce helped form the Dallas County Voters League 
and started trying to register Black residents to vote. You'll remember Bruce's story from Episode 1, Writing for Freedom, after being arrested on his way home to Selma at a lunch counter designated for whites in Virginia. He eventually won an appeal in the Supreme Court. But back in Selma, state and county officials, as well as a white citizens' council, blocked the Dallas County Voters League Black resident registration efforts. They limited voter registration to just two days a month. They applied economic pressure, including threatening people's jobs, firing them, and evicting them from leased homes. In early 1963, organizers from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, arrived in Selma to work with the Dallas County Voters League on a voter registration project. One of the SNCC organizers, Bernard Lafayette, was beaten and almost killed by Klansmen who wanted to stop him. The ongoing work for voting rights was met with repeated arrest, beatings, and death threats. On October 7, 1963, one of the two days of the month when residents were allowed to apply to register to vote, SNCC and the Dallas County Voter League turned out more than 300 blacks from Dallas County to line up at the voter registration office. It was known as Freedom Day, and got national attention. Activists who tried to deliver water to the people in line were arrested. So were people who held signs that said register to vote. Justice Department lawyers and FBI agents watched on, but took no action against local officials. Fry Gilliard is a writer-in-residence at the University of South Alabama and the author of more than 30 books, many about the civil rights movement. Um, we had all been taught in school and in civics classes and, and so forth uh, that we were all equal. Uh, the Declaration of Independence said so, and we were supposed to be equal in the eyes of the law. And we were taught, many of us, in our Sunday school classes that we were all children of God, and therefore uh, it would seem logical that we were brothers and sisters of one another. And yet we didn't act like that in the way we lived our daily lives. Georgia State University historian Glenn Eskew says when President Lyndon Johnson signed into law the Civil Rights Act of 1964, many were hopeful Jim Crow would go away. It didn't matter if you were black or white. It didn't matter what your ethnicity was. It didn't matter if you were male or female. It didn't matter what your religion was. Everybody is equal, according to the law in the United States. But predictably, many Southern segregationists dug in their heels. Four days after Johnson signed the law, civil rights activist John Lewis led 50 black citizens to the Dallas County Courthouse to register to vote, and the sheriff arrested them all. Three days after that, Judge James Hare issued an injunction forbidding civil rights organizations or individual leaders to sponsor any gathering of three or more people. Essentially, it was illegal to talk to more than two people at a time about civil rights. This paralyzed the movement until the Courageous Eight stepped up. They were a group of local activists who invited Martin Luther King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference and SNCC to come to Selma. Taking a pause here to say that if you're interested in following the Alabama Civil Rights Trail through Anniston, Birmingham, Selma, Montgomery, and other places in the state, 
go to alabama.travel slash civil rights or civilrightstrail.com. It's a great way to begin personalizing your experience. Okay, back to the story. The Selma voting rights campaign officially started on January 2nd, 1965, when King addressed a mass meeting in Brown Chapel AME Church. The date was specifically chosen because Dallas County Sheriff Jim Clark, the man whose officers arrested activists giving out water to people waiting in line to register to vote, would be out of town, and the more moderate police chief, Wilson Baker, had agreed to defy the injunction and let the gathering happen. After that meeting, there were more attempts at registering Black voters, more marches, more arrests, and more violence. It all culminated in a day that would be known as Bloody Sunday. My mother told me, don't get in that march. Betty Strong Boynton, the wife of Bruce Boynton, was just a teenager on Sunday, March 7, 1965. Hosea Williams, a member of King's Inner Circle, collected her and a dozen or so other young people to join the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Jose William got us and put about five or six of us in the car. We went across the bridge, and when we got across the bridge, we didn't see nothing but the state troopers and the sheriff and people in plain clothes. We come back to the church and say, everything was all right. Jose said, everything is clear. But it wasn't. As the 500 or so civil rights marchers headed southeast out of Selma on U.S. Highway 80, led by Hosea Williams and John Lewis, they were met by a wall of state troopers. It would be detrimental to your safety to continue this march, and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly. There was also a posse put together by Dallas County Sheriff Jim Clark, who'd ordered all white men over the age of 21 to report to the courthouse earlier that morning to be deputized. And it really is Sheriff Clark uh, who initiated the Bloody Sunday attack on the uh, marchers at the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Mills Thornton is a professor emeritus of history at the University of Michigan and the author of several books about the civil rights movement. They weren't supposed to attack the marchers. They were just supposed to keep them from moving further forward. But uh, uh, Sheriff Clark, he had a tear gas on his belt and he triggered the tear gas and threw it at the marchers. So uh, then the state troopers thought that they were supposed to do the same thing. So they triggered all of their tear gas uh, and so it's at that point that they all charged uh, the marchers. I never, I didn't know what tear gas was. I heard the people screaming, and I saw all of this look like smoke, look, look like smoke. And then all of a sudden, I saw the men's coming with the horses. And the only thing we could do was make it back to his car, because he was parked downtown. And I saw these him men on these horses, and they had whips that's beating people. Beating, beating, beating. So we made it back to his car and got in the car. They made him park the car and get out. And he parked the car and all of us jumped out. And I was running, running, running. 
uh, this, this man, was, he had this, I don't know, grip or something in his hand, was running, he was on his horse, and I was the last one. And this lady said, run, my child, run, my child. She had her door open, and I run up in there. And the, the speed from the horse passed by that door. And I had never been so scared in all of my life. Amelia Boynton, who had helped organize the march, was Bruce Boynton's mother and would become young Betty Strong Boynton's mother-in-law, was beaten unconscious. A photograph of her lying on the road appeared on the front page of newspapers and news magazines around the world. Future Georgia Congressman John Lewis suffered a skull fracture. In all, 17 marchers were hospitalized, and dozens more were treated for less serious injuries. And it was all caught on tape. Televised images of the brutal attack gave Americans and an international audience a horrifying look at oppression. Brenna Wynne Greer is a historian of race, culture, and gender at Wellesley College. To some degree, by 1963, Americans are used to the knowledge of, but even image of African Americans being beaten by white segregationists. The dogs and the hoses bring another element to it. Batons, yes. You know, fists, yes. You know, those things have been used before. But to bring these these other technologies to, you know, physically attacking civil rights activists. President Johnson immediately issued a statement, quote, deploring the brutality with which a number of Negro citizens of Alabama were treated. The following week, he addressed Congress. In Selma, as elsewhere, we seek and pray for peace. We seek order. We seek unity. But we will not accept the peace of stifled rights or the order imposed by fear or the unity that stifles protests. For peace cannot be purchased at the cost of liberty. President Johnson promised to send a voting rights bill to Congress. Immediately after Bloody Sunday, the Southern Christian Leadership Conferences started planning another march. They put a call out to clergy and citizens across the country to join them, and hundreds of people responded and came south. To prevent more violence, the SCLC tried to get a court order prohibiting police from interfering with their march from Selma to Montgomery. But instead, U.S. District Court Judge Frank Johnson issued a restraining order prohibiting the march. There was internal dissent about whether to go on with the march, and former Florida Governor Leroy Collins, representing President Johnson, met with Martin Luther King Jr. in Selma and urged him to make only a symbolic march onto the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Johnson promised protection, and on Tuesday, March 9th, King led thousands of marchers onto the bridge, held a short prayer session, then turned around and marched them back to Selma. The marchers were stunned, and some were angry because they didn't keep going. They traveled from around the country to participate. Later that month, close to 8,000 people assembled at Brown Chapel AME Church in Selma and successfully and safely marched to Montgomery. Almost a week after they started the march, King gave a speech on the steps of Alabama's Capitol building and delivered a petition to one of Governor George Wallace's secretaries. That summer, Congress passed a voting rights bill, 
and President Johnson signed it into law. Again, University of Michigan historian, Mill Thornton. And the really interesting thing about all of that, since this culminates in voting rights, is that as soon as blacks are enfranchised, uh, then the power of the Klan element, the extreme segregationist element, uh, which was a very large percentage of the electorate as long as it was only white people, becomes a very small part of the electorate once it becomes a biracial electorate. So that changed all of that. And so President Johnson uh, introduced this legislation uh, that passed in 1965 and that really did create democracy in the South to the fullest extent that we've ever known it. To see attempts to change that now uh, is just horrifying. University of South Alabama writer-in-residence Fry Gilliard is referring to the U.S. Supreme Court landmark 2013 ruling regarding the constitutionality of two provisions of the Voting Rights Act. In a 5-4 to four vote, the court ruled that the U.S. is a different place than it was in the 1960s, and that nine states, mostly in the South, should no longer be required to get federal approval to change their election laws. The decision had immediate implications for voting rights. 1,200 polling locations were closed in pre-clearance states, primarily across the South. Middle Tennessee State University political scientist Seku Franklin. The photo ID laws were either implemented or were enforced with strict application in many parts of the South. And then now we have a looming redistricting battle as well. Um, those old pre-clearance states won't have the same kind of federal oversight. You know, I, I think we are divided in this country right now uh, about the degree to which we favor democracy. And that's an amazing thing to, to say. Um, I can't believe that I'm saying that. Uh, on the other hand, I guess we always have been. The truth of the matter is I feel a level of optimism that I haven't felt in years. Ed Bridges, Director Emeritus of the Alabama Department of Archives and History. I see white people paying attention to black voices in Alabama in ways that we never did before and to a depth of appreciation and understanding that never occurred before. I've facilitated a lot of discussions in groups where white people are trying to understand this history that we've been oblivious to uh, of how we've used our own institutions to suppress the rights of African Americans and to actually exploit them economically and to start taking steps to repair this damage and to realize what's been done and start repairing it. So, you know, I know it's not deep and widespread, but at leadership levels in businesses, in many religious groups, in many social organizations, uh, civic clubs, there are people who are talking together in ways that I could not have imagined 40 or 50 years ago. Selma is such a place. In one afternoon 50 years ago, so much of our turbulent history, the stain of slavery and anguish of civil war, the yoke of segregation and tyranny of Jim Crow, 
the death of four little girls in Birmingham, and the dream of a Baptist preacher, all that history met on this bridge. After listening to the podcast, you can continue your journey along the Alabama Civil Rights Trail through places like Anniston, Birmingham, Montgomery, and Selma. Go to alabama.travel slash civil rights or civilrightstrail.com to create your own personal travel experience using interactive maps, mobile apps, and other planning tools. In this episode, we heard from Betty Strong Boynton, Wanda Howard Battle, Sekou Franklin, Brenna Wynn Greer, Fry Gilliard, Glenn Eskew, and Ed Bridges. The Alabama Civil Rights Trail podcast is sponsored by the Alabama Tourism Department. This series was narrated by me, Marlene Gordon. It was produced by Ingredient Creative with Tanya Ott as writer and director and Tanner Latham as executive producer. <laughs> <laughs>